Hey, it's Otis here. Before we get to the bedtime reading, I wanted to let you know that I just launched a brand new show. It's called The Daily Book Club, a daytime companion to Sleepy, where you hear entire books one chapter at a time, one day at a time. Simple as that. So if Sleepy is how you uh, wind down your day, The Daily Book Club is a great way to start your day. There's new episodes daily. Uh, I read in a slightly peppier voice so that you can get really lost in these amazing stories that have stood the test of time. Or, just like Sleepy, you can sit back and relax and zone out to a good book. The first book we'll be reading is The Enchanted April by Elizabeth Von Arnhem. Story is, in the 1920s, four women unfulfilled with life take a chance and abscond to a dreamy medieval Italian castle. It's a story dripping with wisteria, the beauty of solitude, and an unlikely pursuit of joy in Portofino, Italy. I think that this is a perfect story for the season, and you can hear it now. Find The Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. This show has been a long time coming, and I'm so excited to bring you even more stories. So go subscribe to The Daily Book Club to hear what happens next. Thanks. This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well, and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high-quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones, they have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included. And there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. Hi everyone. My name is Otis Gray and you're listening to Sleepy. This is a podcast where I read books to help you fall asleep. The podcast is continuing to grow and reach all kinds of listeners. Just found out that Sleepy has been downloaded in 30 countries. That's wild. In order to help me kind of keep on this roll and make sure more restless people can find the show. You know, people have the trouble sleeping, people with insomnia, people who just like listening to books on the subway or while they're on a walk. Just go on iTunes really quick and give a rating. And you can also leave a book that you'd like to hear on Sleepy 
and a review. We'd love to hear from you. And again, this really helps the show keep getting found and it helps this momentum. And just because I hope you're going to be asleep by the end of this, I just want to tell you that the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski. And it's played on this awesome little guitar ukulele thing that he made out of metal. Tonight, this one will put you asleep really quickly because it almost did while I was reading it. This is actually a request from a listener. It's Through the Looking Glass by Lewis Carroll. It's a continuation of uh, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. And it's just as spacey and trippy and totally dreamlike as the Alice in Wonderland. A lot of the scenes in this were what inspired the cartoon. And reading it is like tumbling down that rabbit hole that Alice originally went down into. It's just a meandering, beautiful dreamscape that really lulls you into a spaciness and you forget where you are completely. I had never read this before, and it really was a struggle to get through it, but it's really, really beautiful writing. So, lay your head down, fix your pillow just how you like it, and feel yourself melt into your bed. Close your eyes, and let me read to you. Through the Looking Glass Chapter 1 Looking Glass House One thing was certain, that the white kitten had had nothing to do with it. It was the black kitten's fault entirely, for the white kitten had been having its face washed by the old cat for the last quarter of an hour, and bearing it pretty well considering. So you see that it couldn't have had any hand in the mischief. The way Dinah washed her children's faces was this. First she held the poor thing down by its ear with one paw, and then with the other paw she rubbed its face all over, the wrong way, beginning at the nose. And just now, as I said, she was hard at work on the white kitten, which was lying quite still and trying to purr, no doubt feeling that it was all meant for its good. But the black kitten had been finished with earlier this afternoon, and so, while Alice was sitting curled up in the corner of a great armchair, half talking to herself and half asleep, the kitten had been having a grand time of romps with the ball of worsted Alice had been trying to wind up and had been rolling it up and down till it had all come undone again. And there it was, spread over the hearth rug, all knots and tangles, with the kitten running after its own tail in the middle. Oh, you wicked little thing, cried Alice, catching up the kitten and giving it a little kiss to make it understand that it was in disgrace. Really, Dinah ought to have taught you better manners. You ought, Dinah. You know you ought, she added, looking reproachfully at the old cat and speaking in as cross a voice as she could manage. But then she scrambled back into the armchair, taking the kitten and worsted with her, and began winding up the ball again. But she didn't get on very fast, as she was talking all the time, sometimes to the kitten and sometimes to herself. Kitty sat very demurely on her knee, pretending to watch the progress of the winding, and now and then putting out one paw and gently touching the ball, as if it would be glad to help, if it might. 
Do you know what tomorrow is, Kitty? Alice began. You'd have guessed if you'd been up by the window with me. Only Dinah was making you tidy, so you couldn't. I was watching the boys getting in sticks for the bonfire. And it wants plenty of sticks, Kitty. Only it got so cold, and it snowed, so they had to leave off. Never mind, Kitty. We'll go and see the bonfire tomorrow. Here Alice wound two or three turns of the worsted round the kitty's neck, just to see how it would look. This led to a scramble, in which the ball rolled down upon the floor, and yards and yards of it got unwound again. Do you know, I was so angry, Kitty, Alice went on soon as they were comfortably settled again, when I saw all the mischief you had been doing. I was very nearly opening the window and putting you out of the snow. And you'd have deserved it, you little mischievous darling. What have you got to say for yourself? Now don't interrupt me, she went on, holding up one finger. I'm going to tell you all your faults. Number one, you squeaked twice while Dinah was washing your face this morning. You know you can't deny it. Kitty, I heard you. What's that you say? Pretending that the kitten was speaking. Her paw went into your eye. Well, that's your fault for keeping your eyes open. If you'd shut them up tight, it wouldn't have happened. Now don't make any more excuses, but listen. Number two, you pulled Snowdrop away by the tail as I had put down the saucer of milk before her. What, you were thirsty, were you? How do you know she wasn't thirsty, too? Now for number three, you unwound every bit of the worsted while I was looking. That's three faults, Kitty, and you've not been punished for any of them yet. You know I'm saving up all of your punishments for Wednesday week. Suppose they had saved up all my punishments, she went on, talking more to herself than the kitten. What would they do at the end of the year? I should be sent to prison, I suppose, when the day came. Or, let me see, suppose each punishment was to be going without dinner. Then, when the miserable day came, I should have to go without fifty dinners at once. Well, I shouldn't mind that much. I'd far rather go without them than eat them. Do you hear the snow against the window panes, Kitty? How nice and soft it sounds, just as if someone was kissing the window all over outside. I wonder if the snow loves the trees and fields, that it kisses them so gently, and then it covers them up snug, you know, with a white quilt, and perhaps it says, go to sleep, darlings, till the summer comes again. And when they wake up in the summer, Kitty, they dress themselves all in green and dance about whenever the wind blows. Oh, that's pretty, cried Alice, dropping the ball of worsted to clap her hands. And I do wish it was true. I'm sure the woods look sleepy in the autumn when the leaves are getting brown. Kitty, can you play chess? Now, don't smile, my dear. I'm asking it seriously, because when we were playing just now, you watched just as if you understood it. And when I cried, check, you purred. Well, it was a nice check, Kitty. And really, I ought to have won if it hadn't been for that nasty night that came wiggling down among my pieces. Kitty, dear, let's pretend. And here I wish I could tell you half the things Alice used to say, beginning with her favorite phrase, let's pretend. She had had quite a long argument with her sister only the day before all because Alice had begun with, let's pretend we're kings and queens, 
and her sister, who liked being very exact, had argued that they couldn't, because there were only two of them, and Alice had been reduced at last to say, well, you can be one of them, and I'll be all the rest. And once she had really frightened her old nurse by shouting suddenly in her ear, nurse, do let's pretend that I'm a hungry hyena, and you're a bone. Now this is taking us away from Alice's speech to the kitten. Let's pretend that you're the Red Queen, Kitty. Do you know? I think if you sat up and folded your arms, you'd look exactly like her. Now do try, there's a deer. And Alice got the Red Queen off the table and set it up before the kitten as a model for it to imitate. However, the thing didn't succeed principally, Alice said, because the kitten wouldn't fold its arms properly. So, to punish it, she held it up to the looking glass that it might see how sulky it was. And if you're not good directly, she added, I'll put you through into the looking glass house. How would you like that? Now, if only you'll pretend, Kitty, and not talk so much, I'll tell you all my ideas about the looking glass house. First, there's the room you can see through the glass. That's just the same as our drawing room, only the things go the other way. I can see all of it when I get upon a chair, all but the bit behind the fireplace. Oh, I do wish I could see that bit. I want so much to know whether they've a fire in the winter. You never can tell, you know, unless our fire smokes, and then smoke comes in that room too. But that may only be pretense, just to make it look as if they had a fire. Well then, the books are something, like our books, only the words go the wrong way. I know that because I've held up one of our books to the glass, and then they hold up one in the other room. How would you like to live in the looking glass house, Kitty? I wonder if they'd give you milk there. Perhaps looking glass milk isn't good to drink. But oh, Kitty, now we come to the passage. You can see a little peep of the passage in the looking glass house if you leave the door of our drawing room wide open. And it's very like our passage as far as you can see. Only you know it may be quite different or beyond. Oh, Kitty, how nice it would be if we could only get through that looking glass house. I'm sure it's got, oh, such beautiful things in it. Let's pretend there's a way of getting through into it somehow, Kitty. Let's pretend the glass has got all soft like gauze so that we can get through. Why, it's turning into some sort of mist now, I declare. It'll be easy enough to get through. She was up the chimney piece while she said this, though she hardly knew she had got there. And certainly the glass was beginning to melt away, just like a bright, silvery mist. In another moment, Alice was through the glass and had jumped lightly down into the looking-glass room. The very first thing she did was to look whether there was a fire in the fireplace, and she was quite pleased to find that there was a real one, blazing away as brightly as one that she had left behind. So I shall be as warm here as in the old room, thought Alice. Warmer, in fact, because there'll be no one here to scold me away from the fire. Oh, what fun it will be when they see me through the glass here and can't get at me. Then she began looking about and noticed that what could be seen from the old room was quite common and uninteresting, but that all the rest was as different as possible. For instance, the pictures on the wall next to the fire seemed to be all alive the very clock in the chimney piece. You know you can only see the back of it in the looking glass. It got the face of an old little man and grinned at her. 
as she noticed several of the chessmen down on the hearth among the cinders. But in another moment, with a little oh of surprise, she was down on her hands and knees watching them. The chessmen were walking about two and two. Here are the red king and the red queen, Alice said, in a whisper for fear of frightening them. And there are the white king and the white queen sitting on the edge of the shovel. And here are two castles walking arm in arm. I don't think they can hear me, she went on, as she put her head closer down. And I'm nearly sure they can't see me. I feel somehow as if I were invisible. Here something began squeaking on the table behind Alice and made her turn her head just in time to see one of the white pawns roll over and begin kicking. She watched it with great curiosity to see what would happen next. It is the voice of my child, the white queen cried out as she rushed past the king so violently that she knocked him over among the cinders. My precious lily, my imperial kitten, and she began scrambling wildly up the side of the fender. Imperial fiddlesticks, said the king, rubbing his nose, which had been hurt by the fall. He had a right to be a little annoyed with the queen, for he was covered with ashes from head to foot. Alice was very anxious to be of use, and as the poor little Lily was nearly screaming herself into a fit, she hastily picked up the queen and set her on the table on the side of her noisy little daughter. The queen gasped and sat down. The rapid journey through the air had quite taken away her breath for a minute or two, and she could do nothing but hug the little Lily in silence. As soon as she had recovered her breath a little, she called out to the White King, who was sitting sulkily among the ashes. Mind the volcano. What volcano, said the king, looking up anxiously into the fire, as if he thought that that was the most likely place to find one. Blew me up, panted the queen, who was still a little out of breath. Mind you come up the regular way. Don't get blown up. Alice watched the white king as he slowly struggled up from bar to bar, Till at last he said, Why, it'll be hours and hours getting to the table at that rate. I'd far better help you, hadn't I? But the king took no notice of the question. It was quite clear that he could neither hear nor see her. So Alice picked him up very gently and lifted him across more slowly than she had lifted the queen, that she mightn't take his breath away. But before she put him on the table... She thought she might as well dust him a little. He was covered with ashes. She said afterwards that she had never seen in all her life such a face as the king made when he found himself held in the air by an invisible hand and being dusted. He was far too much astonished to cry out, but his eyes and his mouth went on getting larger and larger and rounder and rounder till her hand shook so with laughing that she nearly let him drop upon the floor. Oh, please don't make such faces, my dear, she cried out, quite forgetting that the king couldn't hear her. You make me laugh so that I can hardly hold you, and don't keep your mouth so wide open. All the ashes will get into it. There, now I think you're tidy enough, she added, as she smoothed his hair and set him upon the table near the queen. The king immediately fell flat on his back and lay perfectly still, and Alice was alarmed at what she had done and went round the room to see if she could find any water to throw over him. However, she could find nothing but a bottle of ink, and when she got back with it, 
She found he had recovered, and he and the queen were talking in a frightened whisper, so low that Alice could hardly hear what they said. The king was saying, I assure you, my dear, I turned cold to the very ends of my whiskers, to which the queen replied, You haven't got any whiskers. The horror of that moment, the king went on, I shall never, never forget. You will, though, the queen said, if you don't make a memorandum of it. Alice looked on with great interest as the king took an enormous memorandum book out of his pocket and began writing. A sudden thought struck her, and she took hold of the pencil, which came some way over his shoulder, and began writing for him. The poor king looked puzzled and unhappy and struggled with the pencil for some time without saying anything. But Alice was too strong for him, and at last he panted out, My dear, I really must get a thinner pencil. I can't manage this one a bit. It writes all manner of things that I don't intend. What manner of things, said the queen, looking over the book in which Alice had put, The white knight is sliding down the poker. He balances very badly. That's not a memorandum of your feelings. There was a book lying near Alice on the table, and while she sat watching the white king, for she was still a little anxious about him, and had the ink all ready to throw over him in case he fainted again, she turned over the leaves to find some part that she could read, for it's all in some language I don't know, she said to herself. It was like this, gibberish. She puzzled over this for some time, but at last a bright thought struck her. Why, it's a looking-glass book, of course, and if I hold it up to the glass, the words will go all the right way again. This was the poem that Alice read. Jabberwocky. T'was brillig, and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe. All mimsy were the burrow groves, and the mome wraths outgrabe. Beware the jabberwock, my son, the jaws that bite, the claws that catch. Beware the jub-jub bird, the shun, and frimorous bandersnatch. He took his vorpal sword in hand, long time the manxome foe he sought. So rested he by the tum-tum tree, and stood a while in thought. And as an uffish thought he stood, the jabberwock with eyes of flame came whiffing through the tulgy wood and burbled as it came. One, two, one, two, and through and through the vorpal blade went snicker-snack. He left it dead, and with its head he went galumphing back. And hast thou slain the jabberwock? Come to my arms, my beamish boy. O frabjous day, kalu kalay, he chortled in his joy. T'was brillig, and the sliffy tobes did gyre and gimble in the wave, all mimsy were the barragoves, and the mome wraths outgrabe. It seems very pretty, she said when she had finished it, but it's rather hard to understand. You see, she didn't like to confess, ever to herself, that she couldn't make it out at all. Somehow it seems to fill my head with ideas, only I don't know exactly what they are. However, somebody killed something, that's clear, at any rate. But oh, thought Alice, suddenly jumping up. If I don't make haste, I shall have to go back through the looking glass before I've gotten to the rest of the house and see what it's like. 
Let's have a look at the garden first. She was out of the room in a moment and ran downstairs, or at least it wasn't exactly running, but a new invention of hers of getting downstairs quickly and easily, as Alice said to herself. She just kept the tips of her fingers and the handrail and floated gently down without even touching the stairs to her feet. And then she floated on through the hall and would have gone straight out the door the same way if she hadn't caught hold of the doorpost. She was getting a little giddy with so much floating in the air and was rather glad to find herself walking in the natural way. Chapter 2. The Garden of Live Flowers I should see the garden far better, said Alice to herself, if I could get to the top of that hill. And here's the path that leads straight to it. At least, no, it doesn't do that. After going a few yards along the path and turning several sharp corners, but I suppose it will, at last. But how curiously it twists. It's more like a corkscrew than a path. Well, this turn goes to the hill, I suppose. No, it doesn't. This goes straight back to the house. Well, then, I'll try it the other way. And so she did, wandering up and down and trying turn after turn, but always coming back to the house, do what she would. Indeed, once... When she turned a corner rather more quickly than usual, she ran against it before she could stop herself. It's no use talking about it, Alice said, looking up at the house and pretending it was arguing with her. I'm not going in again. I knew I should have to get through the looking glass again, back into the old room, and there'd be an end to all my adventures. So, resolutely turning her back upon the house, she set out once more down the path, determined to keep straight on till she got to the hill. For a few moments all went well, and she was just saying, I really shall do it this time, when the path gave a sudden twist and shook itself, as she described it afterwards, and the next moment she found herself actually walking in at the door. Oh, it's too bad, she cried. I never saw such a house for getting in the way. Never. However, there was the hill full in sight, so there was nothing to be done but start again. This time she came upon a large flower bed with a border of daisies and a willow tree growing in the middle. Oh, tiger lily, said Alice, addressing herself to one that was waving gracefully about in the wind. I wish you could talk. We can talk, said the tiger lily, when there's anybody worth talking to. Alice was so astonished that she could not speak for a minute. It quite seemed to take her breath away. At length, as the tiger lily only went on waving about, she spoke again in a timid voice, almost in a whisper. And can all flowers talk? As well as you can, said the tiger lily, and a great deal louder. It isn't manners for us to begin, you know, said the rose, and I really was wondering when you'd speak, said I to myself. Her face has got some sense in it, and though it's not a clever one, still, you're the right color, and that goes a long way. I didn't care about the color, the tiger lily remarked. If only her petals curled up a little more, she'd be all right. Alice didn't like to be criticized, so she began asking questions. Aren't you sometimes frightened at being planted out here with nobody to take care of you? There's a tree in the middle, said the rose. What else is it good for? 
But what could it do if any danger comes? Alice asked. It says bow wow, cried the daisy. That's why its branches are called boughs. Didn't you know that? cried another daisy. And here they all began shouting together, till the air seemed quite full of little shrill voices. Silence, every one of you, cried the tiger lily, waving itself passionately from side to side and trembling with excitement. They know I can't get at them, it panted, bending its quivering head towards Alice, or they wouldn't dare to do it. Never mind, Alice said in a soothing tone, and stooping down to the daisies, who were just beginning again, she whispered, If you don't hold your tongues, I'll pick you. There was silence in a moment, and several of the pink daisies turned white. That's right, said the tiger lily. The daisies are worst of all. When one speaks, they all begin together, and it's enough to make one wither to hear the way they go on. How is it you can all talk so nicely, Alice said, hoping to get into a better temper by the compliment. I've been in so many gardens before, but none of the flowers could talk. Put your hand down and feel the ground, said the tiger lily. Then you'll know why. Alice did so. It's very hard, she said, but I don't see what that has to do with it. In most gardens, the tiger lily said, they make the beds too soft so that the flowers are always asleep. This sounded a very good reason, and Alice was quite pleased to know it. I never thought of that before, she said. It's my opinion that you never think at all, the rose said in a rather severe tone. I never saw anybody that looked stupider, a violet said, so suddenly that Alice quite jumped, for it hadn't been spoken before. Hold your tongue, cried the tiger lily, as if you ever saw anybody. You keep your head up in the leaves and snore away there till you know no more what's going on in the world than if you were a bud. Are there any more people in the garden besides me? Alice said, not choosing to notice the rose's last remark. There's one other flower in the garden that can move about like you, said the rose. I wonder how you do it. You're always wondering, said the tiger lily, but she's more bushy than you are. Is she like me? Alice said eagerly, for the thought crossed her mind. There's another little girl in the garden somewhere. Well, she has the same awkward shape as you, said the rose, but she's redder, and her petals are shorter, I think. Her petals are done up close, almost like a Delilah, the tiger lily interrupted, not tumbled about anyhow like yours. But that's not your fault, the rose added kindly. You're beginning to fade, you know and then one can't help one's petals getting a little untidy. Alice didn't like this idea at all. So to change the subject, she asked, does she ever come out here? I dare say you'll see her soon, said the rose. She's one of the thorny kind. Where does she wear the thorns? Alice said with some curiosity. Why, all around her head, of course, the rose replied. I was wondering you hadn't got some too. I thought it was a regular rule. She's coming, cried the larkspur. I hear her footstep. Thump, thump, thump along the gravel walk. Alice looked around eagerly and found that it was the Red Queen. She's grown a good deal, was her first remark. She had indeed. When Alice first found her in the ashes, she had been only three inches high. And here she was, 
half a head taller than Alice herself. It's the fresh air that does it, said the rose. Wonderfully fine air it is out here. I think I'll go and meet her, said Alice, for though the flowers were interesting enough, she felt that it would be far grander to have a talk with a real queen. You can't possibly do that, said the rose. I should advise you to walk the other way. This sounded nonsense to Alice, so she said nothing, but set off at once towards the Red Queen. To her surprise, she lost sight of her in a moment and found herself walking in at the front door again. A little provoked, she drew back and after looking everywhere for the Queen, whom she spied out at last a long way off, she thought she would try the plan, this time of walking in the opposite direction. It succeeded beautifully. She had not been walking a minute before she found herself face to face with the Red Queen and full in sight of the hill she had long been aiming at. Where do you come from, said the Red Queen, and where are you going? Look up, speak nicely, and don't twiddle your fingers all the time. Alice attended to all these directions and explained, as well as she could, that she had lost her way. I don't know what you mean by your way, said the Queen. All the ways about here belong to me. But why did you come out here at all? She added in a kinder tone. Curtsy while you're thinking of what to say. It saves time. Alice wondered a little at this, but she was too much in awe of the queen to disbelieve it. I'll try when I go home, she thought to herself, the next time I'm a little late for dinner. It's time for you to answer now, the queen said, looking at her watch. Open your mouth a little wider when you speak, and always say, Your Majesty. I only wanted to see what the garden was like, Your Majesty. That's right, said the Queen, patting her on the head, which Alice didn't like at all. Though when you say, garden, I've seen gardens, compared with which this would be a wilderness. Alice didn't dare argue the point, but went on and I thought I'd try to find my way to the top of that hill. When you say hill, the queen interrupted, I could show you hills, in comparison with which you would call that a valley. No, I shouldn't, said Alice, surprised into contradicting her at last. A hill can't be a valley, you know. That would be nonsense. The Red Queen shook her head. You may call it nonsense if you like, she said, but I've heard nonsense, compared with which that you would call as sensible as a dictionary. Alice curtsied again, and she was afraid from the queen's tone that she was a little offended, and they walked on in silence till they got to the top of the little hill. For some minutes, Alice stood without speaking, looking out in all directions over the country, and a most curious country it was. There were a number of tiny little brooks running straight across it from side to side, and the ground between was divided into squares by a number of little green hedges that reached from brook to brook. I declare, it's marked out just like a large chessboard, Alice said at last. There ought to be some ten men moving about somewhere. And so there are, she added in a tone of delight, and her heart began to beat quick with excitement as she went on. It's a great, huge game of chess that's being played all over the world. If this is the world at all, you know. Oh, what fun it is. 
How I wish I was one of them. I wouldn't mind being a pawn, if only I might join. Though of course I should like to be a queen best. She glanced rather shyly at the real queen as she said this, but her companion only smiled pleasantly and said, That's easily managed. You can be the white queen's pawn if you like, as Lily is too young to play, and you're in the second square to begin with. When you get to the eighth square, you'll be a queen. Just at this moment, somehow or other, they began to run. Alice never could quite make out, in thinking it over afterwards, how it was that they began. All she remembers is, they were running hand in hand, and the queen went so fast that it was all she could do to keep up with her. And still, the queen kept crying faster, faster. But Alice felt she could not go faster, though she had not breath left to say so. The most curious part of the thing was that the trees and other things round them never changed their places at all. However fast they went, they never seemed to pass anything. I wonder if all the things move along with us, thought poor puzzled Alice. And the queen seemed to guess at her thoughts, for she cried, Faster, don't try to talk. Not that Alice had any idea of doing that. She felt as if she would never be able to talk again. She was getting so much out of breath, and still the queen cried faster, faster, and dragged her along. Are we nearly there? Alice managed to pant out at last. Nearly there, the queen repeated. Why, if we passed it ten minutes ago. Faster. And they ran on for a time in silence, with the wind whistling in Alice's ears, and almost blowing her hair off her head, she fancied. Now, now, cried the queen, faster, faster. And they went so fast that at last they seemed to skim through the air, hardly touching the ground with their feet, till suddenly, just as Alice was getting quite exhausted, they stopped, and she found herself sitting on the ground, breathless and giddy. The queen propped her up against a tree and said kindly, You may rest a little now. Alice looked round her in great surprise. Why, I do believe we've been under this tree the whole time. Everything's just as it was. Of course it is, said the queen. What would you have in it? Well, in our country, said Alice, still panting a little, you generally get to somewhere else if you ran very fast for a long time, as we've been doing. A slow sort of country, said the queen. Now here, you see, it takes all the running you can do to keep in the same place. If you want to get somewhere else, you must run at least twice as fast as that. I'd rather not try, please, said Alice. I'm quite content to stay here. Only I am so hot and thirsty. I know what you'd like, the queen said good-naturedly, taking out a little box from her pocket. Have a biscuit? Alice thought it would not be civil to say no, though it wasn't at all what she wanted. So she took it. She ate it as well as she could, and it was very dry, and she thought she had never been so nearly choked in all her life. While you're refreshing yourself, said the queen, I'll just take the measurements. And she took a ribbon out of her pocket, marked in inches, and began measuring the ground and sticking little pegs in here and there. At the end of two yards, she said, putting in a peg to mark the distance, 
I shall give you your directions. Have another biscuit? No, thank you, said Alice. One's quite enough. Thirst quenched, I hope, said the queen. Alice did not know what to say to this, but luckily the queen did not wait for an answer, but went on. At the end of three yards, I shall repeat them, for fear of your forgetting them. At the end of four, I shall say goodbye. At the end of five, I shall go. She had got all the pegs put in by this time, and Alice looked on with great interest as she returned at the tree and then began slowly walking down the row. At the two-yard peg, she faced round and said, Upon goes two squares in its first moves, you know, so you go very quickly through to the third square, by railway, I should think, and you'll find yourself in the fourth square in no time. Well, that square belongs to Twiddle D and Twiddle Dum. The fifth is mostly water, and the sixth belongs to Humpty Dumpty. But you make no remark. I, I didn't know I had to make one just then, Alice faltered out. You should have said, it's extremely kind of you to tell me all this. However, we'll suppose it said, the seventh square is all forest. However, one of the knights will show you the way. And in the eighth square, we shall be queens together. And it's all feasting and fun. Alice got up and curtsied and sat down again. At the next peg, the queen turned again, and this time she said, Speak in French when you can't think of English for a thing. Turn out your toes as you walk, and remember who you are. She did not wait for Alice to curtsy this time, but walked on quickly to the next peg, when she turned for a moment to say goodbye, and then hurried on to the last. How it happened, Alice never knew. But exactly as she came to the last peg, she was gone. Whether she vanished into the air, or whether she ran quickly into the wood, and she can run very fast, thought Alice. There was no way of guessing, but she was gone. And Alice began to remember that she was a pawn, and that it would soon be time for her to move. Chapter 3. Looking Glass Insects Of course, the first thing to do was to make a grand survey of the country she was going to travel through. It's something very like learning geography, thought Alice, and she stood on tiptoe in hopes of being able to see a little further. Principal rivers, there are none. Principal mountains, I am on the only one, but I don't think it's got any name. Principal towns, why, what are those creatures making honey down there? They can't be bees. Nobody ever saw bees a mile off, you know. And for some time she stood silent watching one of them as she was bustling about among the flowers, poking its proboscis into them, just as if it was a regular bee, thought Alice. However, this was anything but a regular bee. In fact, it was an elephant, as Alice soon figured out, though the idea quite took her breath away at first. And what enormous flowers they must be, was her next idea. Something like cottages with the roofs taken off and stocks put onto them, and what quantities of honey they must make. I think I'll go down and... No, I won't just yet. She went on, checking herself, as she began to run down the hill, and trying to find some excuse for turning shy so suddenly. It'll never do to go down among them without a good long branch to brush them away. 
and what fun it'll be when they ask me how I like my walk. I shall say, oh, I like it well enough. Here came the favorite little toss in the head, only it was so dusty and hot, and the elephants did tease so. I think I'll go down the other way, she said after a pause, and perhaps I may visit the elephants later on. Besides, I do so want to get into the third square. And with this excuse, she ran down the hill and jumped over the first of the little six brooks. Tickets, please, said the guard, putting his head in the window. In a moment, everyone was holding up their ticket. They were about the same size as the people and quite seemed to fill the carriage. Now then, show your ticket, child, the guard went on, looking angrily at Alice. And a great many voices all said together, like the chorus of a song, thought Alice. Don't keep him waiting, child. Why, his time is worth a thousand pounds a minute. I'm afraid I haven't got one, Alice said in a frightened tone. There wasn't a ticket office where I came from. And again the chorus of voices went on. There wasn't room for one where she came from. The land there is worth a thousand pounds an inch. Don't make excuses, said the guard. You should have bought one from the engine driver. And once more the chorus of voices went on with the man that drives the engine. Why, the smoke alone is worth a thousand pounds a puff. Alice thought to herself, then there's no use in speaking. The voices didn't join in this time, as she hadn't spoken. But to her great surprise, they all thought in chorus. I hope you understand what thinking in chorus means, for I must confess that I don't. Better say nothing at all. Language is worth a thousand pounds a word. I shall dream about a thousand pounds tonight. I know I shall, thought Alice. All this time the guard was looking at her, first through a telescope, then through a microscope, and then through an opera glass. At last, he said, you're traveling the wrong way, and shut up the window and went away. So young a child, said a gentleman sitting opposite to her. He was dressed in white paper. Ought to know which way she's going, even if she doesn't know her own name. A goat that was sitting next to the gentleman in white shut his eyes and said in a loud voice, she ought to know her way to a ticket office, even if she doesn't know her alphabet. There was a beetle sitting next to the goat. It was a very queer carriage full of passengers altogether. And as the rule seemed to be that they should all speak in turn, he went on with, she'll have to go back from here as luggage. Alice couldn't see who was sitting beyond the beetle, but a hoarse voice spoke next. Change engines, it said, and was obliged to leave off. It sounds like a horse, Alice thought to herself, in an extremely small voice, close to her ear. You might make a joke on that. Something about horse and a horse, you know. Then a very gentle voice in the distance said, She must be labeled, lass with care, you know. And after that, other voices went on. What a number of people there are in the carriage, thought Alice, saying, she must go by post, and as she's gotten a head on her, she must be sent as message by telegraph. She must draw the train herself the rest of the way, and so on. But the gentleman dressed in white paper leaned forwards and whispered in her ear, never mind what they all say, my dear, 
but take a return ticket every time the train stops. Indeed, I shan't, Alice said rather impatiently. I don't belong to this railway journey at all. I was in a wood just now, and I wish I could get back there. You might make a joke on that, said the little voice close to her ear. Something about, you would, if you could, you know. Don't tease so, said Alice, looking about in vain to see where the voice came from. If you're so anxious to have a joke made, why don't you make one yourself? The little voice sighed deeply. It was very unhappy, evidently, and Alice would have said something pitying to comfort it, if it would only sigh like other people, she thought. But this was such a wonderfully small sigh that she wouldn't have heard it at all if it hadn't come quite close to her ear. The consequence of this was if it tickled her ear very much and quite took her thoughts off the unhappiness of the poor little creature. I know you are a friend, the little voice went on, a dear friend and an old friend, and you won't hurt me, though I am an insect. What kind of insect? Alice inquired a little anxiously. What she really wanted to know was whether it could sting or not, but she thought this wouldn't be a quite civil question to ask. What? Then you don't. The little voice began when it was drowned out by a shrill scream from the engine and everybody jumped in alarm, Alice among the rest. The horse, who had put his head out of the window, quietly drew it in and said, It's only a brook we have to jump over. Everybody seemed satisfied with this, though Alice felt a little nervous at the idea of trains jumping at all. However, it'll take us into the fourth square. That's some comfort, she said to herself. In another moment, she felt the carriage rise straight up into the air, and in her fright, she caught at the nearest thing to her hand, which happened to be the goat's beard. But the beard seemed to melt away as soon as she touched it, and she found herself sitting quietly under a tree, while the gnat, for what was the insect she had been talking to, was balancing itself on a twig just over her head and fanning her with its wings. It certainly was a very large gnat, about the size of a chicken, Alice thought. Still, she couldn't feel nervous with it after they'd been talking together for so long. Then you don't like all insects, the gnat went on, as quietly as if nothing had happened. I like them when they can talk, Alice said. None of them ever talk where I come from. What sort of insects do you rejoice in where you come from, the gnat inquired. I don't rejoice in insects at all, Alice explained, because I'm rather afraid of them, at least the large kinds, but I can tell you the names of some of them. Of course, they answer to their names, the gnat remarked carelessly. I never knew them to do it. What's the use of them having names, the gnat said, if they won't answer to them? No use to them, said Alice, but it's useful to people who name them, I suppose. If not, why do things have names at all? I can't say, the gnat replied. Further on, in the wood down there, they've got no names. However, go on with your list of insects. You're wasting time. Well, there's the horsefly, Alice began, counting off names on her fingers. All right, said the gnat. Halfway up that bush, you'll see a rocking horsefly if you look. 
It's made entirely of wood and gets about swinging itself from branch to branch. What does it live on? Alice asked with great curiosity. Sap and sawdust, said the gnat. Go on with the list. Alice looked up at the rocking horse fly with great interest and made up her mind that it must have been repainted. It looked so bright and sticky. And then she went on. And there's the dragonfly. Look on the branch above your head, said the gnat, and there you'll find a snap dragonfly. Its body is made of plum pudding, its wings of holly leaves, and its head is a raisin burning into brandy. And what does it live on? Frumenti and mince pie, the gnat replied, and makes its nest in the Christmas box. But then there's the butterfly, Alice went on, after she had taken a good look at the insect with its head on fire, and had thought to herself, I wonder if there's a reason insects are so fond of flying into candles, because they want to turn into snapdragonflies. Crawling at your feet, said the gnat, Alice drew her feet back in some alarm. You may observe a bread and butterfly. Its wings are thin slices of bread and butter, its body is a crust, and its head is a lump of sugar. But what does it live on? Weak tea with cream in it. A new difficulty came into Alice's head. Supposing it couldn't find any, she suggested. Then it would die, of course. But that must happen very often, Alice remarked thoughtfully. It always happens, said the gnat. After this, Alice was silent for a minute or two, pondering. The gnat amused itself, meanwhile, by humming round and round her head. At last, it settled again and remarked, I suppose you don't want to lose your name. No, indeed, Alice said, a little anxiously. And yet I don't know why, the gnat went on in a careless tone. Only think how convenient it would be if you could manage to go home without it. For instance, if the governess wanted to call you to your lessons, she would call out, Come here. And there she would have to leave off, because she wouldn't be any name for her to call. And of course you wouldn't have to go, you know. That would never do, I'm sure, said Alice. The governess would never think of me excusing lessons for that. If she couldn't remember my name, she'd call me Miss, as the servants do. Well, if she said Miss and didn't say anything more, the gnat remarked, of course you'd miss your lessons. That's a joke. I wish you had made it. Why do you wish I had made it? Alice asked. It's a very bad one. But the gnat only sighed deeply, while two large tears came rolling down his cheeks. You shouldn't make jokes, Alice said, if it makes you so unhappy. Then came another of those melancholy little sighs, and this time the poor gnat really seemed to have sighed itself away. For when Alice looked up, there was nothing whatever to be seen on the twig, and as she was getting quite chilly with sitting still so long, she got up and walked on. She very soon came to an open field, with a wood on the other side of it. It looked much darker than the last wood, and Alice felt a little timid about going into it. However, on second thoughts, she made up her mind to go on, for I certainly won't go back, she thought to herself, and this was the only way to the eighth square. This must be the wood, she said thoughtfully to herself, 
where things have no names. I wonder what will become of my name when I go in. I shouldn't like to lose it at all, because they'd have to give me another, and it would be almost certain to be an ugly one. But then the fun would be trying to find a creature that had gotten my old name. That's just like the advertisements, you know, when people lose their dogs. Answer to the name of Dash, had on a brass collar. Just fancy calling everything you met, Alice, till one of them answered. Only they wouldn't answer at all if they were wise. She was rambling on in this way when she reached the wood. It looked very cool and shady. Well, at any rate, it's a great comfort, she said as she stepped under the trees after being so hot to get into the... Into what? She went on, rather surprised at not being able to think of the word. I mean, to get under the, under the, under this, you know? Putting your hand on the trunk of a tree. What does it call itself, I wonder? I do believe it's got no name. Why, to be sure it hasn't. She stood silent for a minute, thinking. Then she suddenly began again. Then it really has happened, after all. And now, who am I? I will remember if I can. I'm determined to do it. But being determined didn't help much. And all she could say, after a great deal of puzzling, was, I know, it begins with an L. Just then a fawn came wandering by. It looked at Alice with its large, gentle eyes, but didn't seem at all frightened. Here then, here then, Alice said, as she held out her hand and tried to stroke it. But it only started back a little and then stood looking at her again. What do you call yourself? The fawn said at last. Such a soft, sweet voice it had. I wish I knew, thought poor Alice. She answered rather sadly. Nothing. Just now. Think again, it said. That won't do. Alice thought, but nothing came of it. Please, would you tell me what you call yourself? She said timidly. I think that might help a little. I'll tell you, if you'll move a little farther on, the fawn said. I can't remember here. So they walked on together through the wood, Alice with her arms clasped lovingly round the soft neck of the fawn, till they came out into another open field, and here the fawn came a sudden bound into the air and shook itself free from Alice's arms. I'm a fawn, it cried out in a voice of delight, and dear me, you're a human child. A sudden look of alarm came into its beautiful brown eyes, and in another moment it had darted away at full speed. Alice stood looking after it, almost ready to cry with vexation at having lost her dear little fellow traveler so suddenly. However, I know my name now, she said. That's some comfort. Alice, Alice, I won't forget it again. And now... Which one of these finger posts ought I ought to follow, I wonder? It was not a very difficult question to answer, as there was only one road through the wood, and two finger posts both pointed along it. I'll settle it, Alice said to herself, when the road divides and they point different ways. But this did not seem likely to happen. She went on and on, a long way, but wherever the road divided, there were sure to be two finger posts pointing the same way, 
one marked to Tweedledum's house, and the other to the house of Tweedledee. I do believe, said Alice at last, that they live in the same house. I wonder, I never thought of that before, but I can't stay there long. I'll just call and say, how do you do? And ask them the way out of the wood. If I could only get into the A square before it gets dark. So she wandered on, talking to herself as she went, till, on turning a sharp corner, she came upon two fat little men, so suddenly that she could not help starting back. But another moment, she recovered herself. But another moment, she recovered herself, feeling sure that they must be. Chapter 4 Tweedledee and Tweedledum They were standing there under a tree, each with an arm around the other's neck, and Alice knew which was which in a moment, because one of them had dumb embroidered on his collar, and the other D. I suppose they've each got Tweedle around the back of the collar, she said to herself. They stood so still that they quite forgot they were alive, and she was just looking round to see if the word Tweedle was written at the back of each collar, and she was startled by a voice coming from the one marked Dumb. If you think we're waxworks, he said, you ought to pay, you know. Waxworks weren't made to be looked at for nothing, nohow. Contrarywise, added one Mark D, if you think we're alive, you ought to speak. I'm sure I'm very sorry, was all Alice could say, for the words of the old song kept ringing through her head like the ticking of a clock, and she could hardly keep but saying them out loud. Tweedledum and Tweedledee agreed to have a battle, for Tweedledum said Tweedledee, had spoiled his nice new rattle. Just then flew down a monstrous crow, as black as tar barrel, which frightened both the heroes so they quite forgot their quarrel. I know what you're thinking about, said Tweedledum, but it isn't so, nohow. Contrarywise, continued Tweedledee, if it was so, it might be, and if it were so, it would be, but as it isn't, it ain't. That's logic. I was thinking, Alice said very politely, which is the best way to get out of the wood? It's so dark, would you tell me, please? But the little men only looked at each other and grinned. They looked so exactly like a couple of great schoolboys that Alice couldn't help pointing her finger at Tweedledum and saying, First boy. No how, Tweedledum cried out briskly and shut his mouth up again with a snap. Next boy, said Alice, passing on to Tweedledee, though she felt quite certain that he would only shout contrarywise, and so he did. You've been wrong, cried Tweedledum. The first thing in a visit is to say, how do you do, and shake hands. And here the two brothers gave each other a hug, and then they held out two hands that were free to shake hands with her. Alice did not like shaking hands with either of them at first, for fear of hurting the other one's feelings. So, as the best way out of the difficulty, she took hold of both hands at once. The next moment they were dancing round in a ring. It seemed quite natural, she remembered afterwards, and she was not even surprised to hear music playing. It seemed to come from under the tree with which they were dancing, and it was done, as well as she could make it out, by the branches rubbing one across the other, like fiddles and fiddlesticks. But it certainly was funny 
Alice said afterwards, when she was telling her sister the history of all this, to find myself singing, Here we go round the mulberry bush. I don't know when it began, but somehow I felt as if I'd been singing it a long, long time. The other two dancers were fat and very soon out of breath. Four times round is enough for one dance, Tweedledum panted out, and they left off dancing as suddenly as they had begun. The music stopped at the same moment. Then they let go of Alice's hands and stood looking at her for a minute. There was a rather awkward pause, as Alice didn't know how to begin a conversation with people she had just been dancing with. It would never do to say, how do you do, now, she said to herself. We seem to have gone beyond that, somehow. I hope you're not much tired, she said at last. No, how, and thank you very much for asking, said Tweedledum. So much obliged, asked Tweedledee. You like poetry? Yes, pretty well, some poetry, Alice said doubtfully. Would you tell me its road leads out of the wood? What shall I repeat to her, said Tweedledee, looking round at Tweedledum with great solemn eyes and not noticing Alice's question. The walrus and the carpenter is the longest, Tweedledum replied, giving his brother an affectionate hug. Tweedledee began instantly. The sun was shining. Here Alice ventured to interrupt them. If it's very long, she said, as politely as she could, would you please tell me first which road? Tweedledee smiled gently and began again. The sun was shining on the sea, shining with all his might. He did his very best to make the billows smooth and bright, and this was odd because it was the middle of the night. The moon was shining sulkily because she thought the sun had got no business to be there after the day was done. It's very rude of him, she said, to come and spoil the fun. The sea was as wet as wet could be. The sands were dry as dry. You could not see a cloud because there was no cloud in the sky. No birds were flying overhead. There were no birds to fly. The walrus and the carpenter were walking close at hand. They kept like anything to see such quantities of sand. If this were the only cleared way, they said, it would be grand. If seven maids with seven mops swept it for half a year, do you suppose, the walrus said, that they could get it clear? I doubt it, said the carpenter and shed a bitter tear. Oh, oysters, come and walk with us, the walrus did beseech. A pleasant walk, a pleasant talk, along the briny beach. We cannot do with more than four. They give a hand to each. The eldest oyster looked at him, but never a word he said. The eldest oyster winked his eye and shook his heavy head, meaning to say he did not choose to leave the oyster bed. But four young oysters hurried up, all eager for the treat. Their coats were brushed, their faces washed, their shoes were clean and neat, and this was odd because, you know, they hadn't any feet. Four other oysters followed them, and yet another four, and thick and fast as they came at last, and more and more and more, all hopping through the frothy waves and scrambling to the shore. The walrus and the carpenter walked on a mile or so, and then they rested on a rock, conveniently low, and all the little oysters stood and waited in a row. 
The time has come, the walrus said, to talk of many things, of shoes and ships and sealing wax, of cabbages and kings, and why the sea is boiling hot and whether pigs have wings. But wait a bit, the oysters cried, before we have our chat, for some of us are out of breath and all of us are fat. No hurry, said the carpenter, and they thanked him each for that. A loaf of bread, a walrus said, is what we chiefly need. Pepper and vinegar besides are very good indeed. Now if you're ready, oysters dear, we can begin to feed. But not on us, the oysters cried, turning a little blue. After such kindness, that would be a dismal thing to do. The night is fine, the walrus said. Do you admire the view? It was so kind of you to come, and you were very nice. The carpenter said nothing, but cut us another slice. I wish you were not quite so deaf. I've had to ask you twice. It seems a shame, the walrus said, to play them such a trick. After we brought them out so far, and made them trot so quick, the carpenter said nothing, but the butter spread too thick. I weep for you, the walrus said. I deeply sympathize. With sobs and tears he sorted out those of the largest size, holding his pocket handkerchief before his streaming eyes. Oh, oysters, said the carpenter, you've had a pleasant run. Shall we be trotting home again? But answer, came there none. And that was scarcely odd because they'd eaten every one. I like the walrus best, said Alice, because you can see he was a little sorry for the poor oysters. He ate more than the carpenter, though, said Twiddadee. You see, he held his handkerchief in front so that the carpenter couldn't count how many he took, contrarywise. That was mean, Alice said indignantly. Then I liked the carpenter best, if he didn't eat so many as the walrus. But he ate as many as he could get, said Tweedledee. This was a puzzler. After a pause, Alice began, Well, they were both very unpleasant characters. Here, she checked herself in some alarm at hearing something that sounded to her like the puffing of a large steam engine in the wood near them, though she feared it was more likely to be a wild beast. Are there any lions or tigers about here? she asked timidly. It's only the Red King snoring, said Tweedledee. Come and look at him, the brothers cried, and they each took one of Alice's hands and led her up where the king was sleeping. Isn't he a lovely sight, said Tweedledum. Alice couldn't say honestly that he was. He had a tall red nightcap on with a tassel, and he was lying crumpled up into a sort of untidy heap and snoring loud, fit to snore his head off, as Tweedledum remarked. I'm afraid he'll catch cold with lying on the damp grass, said Alice, who was a very thoughtful little girl. He's dreaming now, said Tweedledee, and what do you think he's dreaming about? Alice said, nobody can guess that. Why, about you? Tweedledee exclaimed, clapping his hands triumphantly. And if he left off dreaming about you, where do you suppose you'd be? Where I am now, of course, said Alice. Not you, Tweedledee retorted contemptuously. You'd be nowhere. Why, you're only sort of a thing in his dream. If that there king was to wake, added Tweedledum, You'd go out, bang, just like a candle. 
I shouldn't, Alice exclaimed indignantly. Besides, if I'm only sort of the thing in his dream, what are you, I should like to know? Ditto, said Tweedledum. Ditto, ditto, cried Tweedledee. He shouted this so loud that Alice couldn't help saying, Hush, you'll be waking him, I'm afraid, if you make so much noise. Well, it's no use your talking about waking him, said Tweedledum, when you're only one of the things in his dream. You know very well you're not real. I am real, said Alice and began to cry. You won't make yourself a bit realer by crying, Tweedledee remarked. There's nothing to cry about. If I wasn't real, Alice said, half laughing through her tears, it all seems so ridiculous. I shouldn't be able to cry. I hope you don't suppose those are real tears, Tweedledum interrupted in a tone of great contempt. I know they're talking nonsense, Alice thought to herself, and it's foolish to cry about it. So she brushed away her tears and went on cheerfully as she could. At any rate, I'd better be getting out of the wood, for really it's coming on very dark. Do you think it's going to rain? Tweedledum spread a large umbrella over himself and his brother and looked up into it. No, I don't think it is, he said. At least, not under here, no how. But it may rain outside? It may, if it chooses, said Tweedledee. We've no objection, contrarywise. Selfish things, thought Alice, and she was going to say good night and leave them when Tweedledum sprang from under her umbrella and seized her by the wrist. Do you see that? he said, in a voice choking with passion, and his eyes grew large and yellow all in a moment as he pointed with a trembling finger at a small white thing lying under the tree. It's only a rattle, Alice said, after a careful examination of a little thing. Not a rattlesnake, you know, she added hastily, thinking that he was frightened. Only an old rattle, quite old and broken. I knew it was, cried Tweedledum, beginning to stamp about wildly and tear his hair. It's spoiled, of course. Here he looked at Tweedledee, who immediately sat down on the ground and tried to hide himself under the umbrella. Alice laid her hand upon his arm and said in a soothing tone, you needn't be so angry about an old rattle. But it isn't old, Tweedledum cried in a greater fury than ever. It's new, I tell you. I bought it yesterday. My nice new rattle. And his voice rose to a perfect scream. All this time, Tweedledee was trying his best to fold up the umbrella with himself in it, which was such an extraordinary thing to do that it quite took off Alice's attention from his angry brother but he couldn't quite succeed, and it ended in rolling all over, bundled up in the umbrella, with only his head out. And there he lay, opening and shutting his mouth and his large eyes, looking more like a fish than anything else, Alice thought. Of course you agree to have a battle, Tweedledum said in a calmer tone. I suppose so, the other sulkily replied, as he crawled out of the umbrella. Only she must help us dress up, you know. So the two brothers went off hand in hand into the wood and returned in a minute with their arms full of things, such as bolsters, blankets, hearth rugs, tablecloths, dish covers, and coal shuttles. I hope you're a good hand at pinning and tying strings, Tweedledum remarked. 
Every one of these things has got to go on somehow or another. Alice said afterwards she had never seen a fuss made about anything in all her life. The way those two bustled about, and the quantity of things they put on, and the trouble they gave her in tying strings and fastening buttons. Really, they'll be more like bundles of old clothes than anything else by the time they're ready, she said to herself, as she arranged a bolster around the neck of Tweedledee to keep his head from being cut off, as he said. You know, he added very gravely, it's one of the most serious things that can possibly happen to one in a battle, to get one's head cut off. Alice laughed aloud, but she managed to turn it into a cough for fear of this hurting his feelings. Do I look very pale, said Tweedledum, coming up to have his helmet tied on. He called it a helmet, though it certainly looked more like a saucepan. Well, yes, a little, Alice replied gently. I'm very brave, generally, he went on in a low voice. Only today I happen to have a headache. And I've got a toothache, said Tweedledee, who had overheard the remark. I'm far worse off than you. Then you'd better not fight today, said Alice, thinking it a good opportunity to make peace. We must have a bit of a fight. I don't care about it going on long, said Tweedledum. What's the time now? Tweedledee looked at his watch and said, Half past four. Let's fight till six and then have dinner, said Tweedledum. Very well, said the other, rather sadly. And she can watch us. Only you'd better not come very close, he added. I generally hit everything I can see when I get really excited. And I hit everything within reach, cried Tweedledum, whether I can see it or not. Alice laughed. You must hit the trees pretty often, I think, she said. Tweedledum looked around with a satisfied smile. I don't suppose, he said, there'll be a tree left standing forever so far around by the time we finished. And all about a rattle, said Alice, still hoping to make him a little ashamed for fighting over such a trifle. I shouldn't have minded it so much, said Tweedledum, if it hadn't been a new one. I wish the monstrous crow would come, thought Alice. There's only one sword, you know, Tweedledum said to his brother. But you can have the umbrella. It's quite as sharp. Only we must begin quick. It's getting dark as it can. And darker, said Tweedledee. It was getting dark so suddenly that Alice thought there must be a thunderstorm coming on. What a thick black cloud that is, she said. And how fast it comes. Why, I do believe it's got wings. It's a crow, Tweedledum cried out in a shrill voice of alarm, and the two brothers took to their heels and were out of sight in a moment. Alice ran a little way into the wood and stopped under a large tree. They can never get at me here, she thought. It's far too large to squeeze itself in among the trees, but I wish it wouldn't flap its wings so. It makes quite a hurricane in the wood. Here's somebody's shawl being blown away. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.